Welcome, everybody, to Beyond the Shadows. I'm author and researcher and filmmaker Mike Ricksecker uh, with you once again here live Wednesday night on the Beyond the Shadows live stream from the Connected Universe portal. For those listening to the podcast later and the uh, syndicated show on KGRA Radio, uh, you can access this live through the Connected Universe portal. Uh, just go to ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Uh, there's a lot going on there just besides Beyond the Shadows between uh, courses, the membership site. Uh, you've got monthly Q&As, all kinds of articles, uh, many, many videos out there. So uh, please go ahead, check that out, ConnectedUniversePortal.com. All right, so tonight what we're getting into here are Legends, Lore, and The Truth. That's the title of tonight's show. So basically... Uh, how do these legends and lore come about? And really, when we have those, how do we actually dive in and find the truth is ultimately uh, the question. You know, we uh, go to a lot of historic locations, you know, maybe even just a, a family home, and you know, there, there may be some uh, interesting stories about that particular location or about a particular event, and, you know, especially when it comes to ones that have become popular in pop culture and you no longer know what is the real truth behind what exactly happened. So, uh, and there's Joe Chandler. Great to see you, Joe. So along with Nicole and Tom and, and others that are filtering in. So, so how does, how does one figure out what that real truth is when you have all of these layers and layers and layers of lore upon that. And we've seen that in several of the different shows that we've done here in Beyond the Shadows, you know, like when we got into the fairies and those type of uh, supernatural entities, you know, there's so much legend and lore. You just pick up a book on, uh, on fairies and it gets into you know, all these different categories and the hierarchy of the Fey realm and all this stuff. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I just want to know, because this, I came across that when I was just, you know, I had witnessed some things and I want to know if what I witnessed was what one would call a fairy. And I'm just, you know, pick up a book like that and I'm muddled in all of this legend and lore and I'm kind of, you know, at a loss there. Okay, what is exactly the truth? But we're going to get into that uh, with The Conjuring House. Uh, we'll hit on Helltown, and we'll hit on some other locations as well. So I'm actually going to pop up a, uh, a presentation here that I've put together uh, talking about uh, some of this stuff before. So and that is the, the old uh, History and the Paranormal, a Working Relationship presentation. But I've made some modifications here. Uh, and along the way, over the years, this has kind of grown, expanded, and got different stories in here. Uh, like I said, Tom probably recognizes this. But, uh, yeah, history and storytelling. So, you know, a, a lot of times the stories that we have have been passed down through word of mouth, uh, you know, and the, uh, it was Socrates uh, actually hated writing. Uh, he preferred uh, stories passed down by word of mouth. He thought there was more to being able to retain through your mind, you know, kind of like good practice of, uh, of memory skills to be able to retain the story and recite verbatim uh, those particular stories. So it's like when somebody knew the Odyssey, they just, you know, it, it wasn't one of those where they were reading from a script back then. They actually verbatim knew everything about the Odyssey by heart, line for line, word for word. Uh, but we also see that in our... You know, indigenous tribes here in, in North America, most of them did not have a written history. It was all passed down through through storytelling, but storytelling was extremely important to them. And so they believe that, you know, their stories that they passed down were extremely, extremely accurate. Now, say what you want about the uh, the conclusion of Game of Thrones, but one line I did like from that was... Tyrion and that last meeting that uh, that they all had when they were you know, determining who was going to be king, and the line he says, "There's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story," 
And that is essentially what happens with a lot of uh, the legend and lore. Like there's, you know, a specific event that happens. And, you know, a lot of times that, that story is good enough. But you know how over time, you know, the fish gets bigger and the weather gets worse. And, you know, it's... It's one of those things where you know the story gets added onto and embellished and becomes very, very different than than what the original story was. And the reason why is because you know people are looking for an engaging audience, uh, and when you have an engaged audience, whatever the uh, central message is within that story will stick more, or uh, at least that's the idea. So. That same, or at least very similar thing was said in the Shadow Dimension docu-series by Elise Carlson, a historian from the uh, Johnson Historical Society who weighed in on the, uh, the history and legends of uh, what, we know, what we call now the, the Conjuring House or the, or the uh, House on Round Top Farm. So basically, this is, this is the house that the movie, the first movie uh, of the Conjuring series is based on, where the Perrin family lived for for 10 years. Now, there's multiple facets of, of this story, and you know one of those was uh, Bathsheba. Now, the way the movie depicted was that you know she was uh, you know an evil witch. Uh, you know, she ended up possessing Carolyn, and you know, they had to do an exorcism in the basement. Uh, very, very different than what uh, originally happened. Now, the local lore uh, was that Bathsheba, and this is just the story. This is this is not necessarily true because there's no way to prove it. Uh, the local lore is that Bathsheba uh, had actually murdered a baby with a needle, jabbing it in the back of the head. So... When talking with Elise in the uh, Shadow Dimension docu series about this, because most people actually believe that that is incorrect, that that never happened, uh, because it's not found anywhere within the, uh, you know, within the local history. Uh, there's even a uh, uh, what they call the Black Book uh, of what is it of Burrowville, which is one of the local towns there. And it, it's a basically a book of all kinds of interesting, crazy, wild, bizarre, um, and terrible deaths in the local area for you know for all time. You know from when the uh, the area was was settled, and this story is not there at all. So it it appears to be a legend that, as Elise says. Uh, basically appeared, it was conjecture after her death. Uh, and so I ended up asking Elise, okay, well, you know, how did this happen? How did this perpetuate? And as Elise says, as Tyrion said previously, people like a good story. Um, and it's one of the things that attracted her to the house as a historian uh, is that it was a very interesting story, and so she became compelled to dive further into the history of that house. And those watching the live broadcast, um, you know, here is what is known as the Conjuring House. Yes, very different than the movie. <laughs> uh, the movie was actually filmed in Georgia. They used a uh, uh, they used a two story farmhouse next to a lake on that. Uh, smaller footprint and taller this is a lot longer in nature it almost looks like a ranch style house uh there are two stories but much shorter than the house that they that they use for the movie um but yes this is uh this is the house that the movie was based on and again you know you have all this legend where bathsheba never actually lived here um you know, she visited, she had familial ties to the land, um, but she never actually lived here. 
this supposed baby. Uh, no, that incident did not happen here either. You know, so nobody really knows where the story came from, where it originated. Uh, but you know, you have certain things happen over time in which, you know, there's a there's an old miserable woman, and there's enough uh, there are enough stories out there to to basically paint her, you know, as an old miserable woman. People that, um, well, like when the parents did live here in the 1970s, they had befriended somebody in town who was elderly at the time, and he had actually met Bathsheba when he was, uh, when he was very young. Now, people automatically think that, uh, well, you know, it's an old colonial house from the 1700s, so Bathsheba lived back then. Well, actually, no, she lived in the 1800s. <laughs> uh, but, this, but this individual apparently had, had met her when he was extremely young, and she was extremely old at the time. And so uh, she was an old, miserable woman. And so what do people around that time usually attribute to you know, old, miserable women living by themselves, um, you know, that are kind of crotchety when they run into somebody. Well, they had, they end up, you know, giving them the story of being the witch. And so you see this amalgamation of, um, of different things start to come together to uh, create a story. Uh, something that Andrea points out in the, uh, the Shadow Dimension docu-series is that Bathsheba was a mother herself. And... Uh, you know, as as a mother, she experienced tragedy of of her children passing away from from illness. Uh, you can go to the site, the the gravesite, and, and see the stones there. Uh, Bathsheba Stone is not there right now uh, because of uh, vandalism from the movie. So, you know, people overreacted to what they saw in the movie of her being this witch and being, uh, you know, possessing Carolyn and, and essentially making her out to be some demon. So people went and destroyed her headstone. Uh, the local community pieced it back together. People came by and destroyed it again. Uh, I actually got to see it before they finally removed it one last time. They repaired it one last time and have hidden the headstone away. Uh, so her spot, you know, you just see the base that's sitting there. But her husband's stone is there, and then, uh, and then the children. Uh, so she actually, you know, as a mother, had experienced uh, tragedy. So um, if if she's experiencing, you know, these losses, is she really going to, I don't know, murder somebody else's baby? That's a question that that Andrea throws out there during the series. Uh, she does not believe that as as a mother. Um, having experienced these losses, she doesn't get the feeling that Bathsheba would have done that. Again, we don't know for sure. So then, you know, all that, that's local history. That's local history and legend. But now the movies have imparted, uh, you know, other stories on top of that house. You know, and it became, it became like Amityville. So the uh, you know a couple of years ago, the house changed hands. Uh, the the owner who had had it for you know, decades after the parents, um, you know, got fed up with people coming onto the property to you know get a look at at the house. You know, it was an invasion of privacy, uh, and we saw the same thing you know back during the 1970s with Amityville, where. Uh, you know, the movie came out and people flocked to the Amityville house. Uh, I know Tom down there has actually been to the house, or at least outside of it. Uh, they've, they've changed the address of the house. They changed the windows uh, to make it look different, painted it a different color. I mean, you drive by it, you know that's it. But, um, you know, they did a lot of things to try to disguise it because people were coming up on their property all the time because of the movie. So, you know, naturally, the uh, people that, you know, lived in the house at that time, you know, were saying, you know, there's no, you know, there's no paranormal activity going on here. Uh, I believe, you know, 
that there you know, was and, and probably still is paranormal activity going on in there. I don't believe it's as the movie. There are plenty of people that have come out to basically call Amityville uh, you know, a lot of the uh, uh, stores, you know, the pig and uh, you know, all these other crazy things that supposedly went on there uh, were all fabricated. But, you know, still, if you have all these people flocking to your property because of some movie, your natural inclination is going to say, you know, it's all garbage, it's all rubbish, there's nothing going on here. Basically, the same thing was going on with, uh, with the Conjuring House, where, you know, the owner was uh, extremely angry because all these people were coming up onto the property. She started saying uh, that there was nothing paranormal going on there when, in fact, you know, she had... Uh, had the house featured on on Ghost Hunters. Uh, I'd seen old uh, YouTube videos have been taken down now, but of her with Andrea going through the house, talking about a number of things that had, that had happened there. So it's like, but I totally get it. You know, it's an invasion of uh, of privacy, and so you know now you have this movie phenomenon that has imparted other stories and legends on top of other stories and legend. It, you know. And so now you know, don't know what the truth of the matter is. You don't know what happened there because uh, you have the local stuff uh, that's been around for, you know, decades, probably even, a, uh, you know, like 100 years around there. And then you have all the movie fluff on top of it. So what's real? Uh, and then Tom is down there saying he got to go to the Amityville house before they got rid of the windows. Uh, yeah, that that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So... All right, let's uh, so let's take a look at the inside of the Conjuring House here. So, what really happened? Well, it was not a uh, it was not an exorcism in the basement uh, with Bathsheba possessing Carolyn for however long that was going on. Uh, supposedly in the movie, what what it was was a seance gone bad. Now, the movie makes it look like, uh, you know, Carolyn reached out to Ed and Lorraine at a seminar. They came to the house, immediately decided that it was a demon, and within, I don't know, I, I guess maybe a week, <laughs> um, you know, they exorcised this demon from Carolyn. Uh, yeah, that's not what happened at all. Uh, first of all, it was... Um, Carl and Keith Johnson that introduced the the parents to the Warrens. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting about this this particular part of the story because because their group, which was Pyro, Carl and Keith's uh, paranormal group, had put an ad in the paper, you know, advertising their their paranormal team that they could do investigations. And they say that Carolyn had called them because things were going on at the house and she wanted some answers. And so they came out to the house and showed up, you know, basically showed up at the front door. Now, according to Carolyn, she says she never made that call in that these guys just showed up on their doorstep out of nowhere. So, you know, there's, there's the idea that maybe the house kind of called uh, the Johnsons there. And a number of things happened while uh, the Johnsons and the, the one girl, Donna, and the, the, the pyro team were there. And so they ended up, you know, taking the information that they had gathered to, to the Warrens and got the Warrens involved. So eventually, after the Warrens being involved for, uh, for some time, uh, they decided that they wanted to hold a seance in what was then the dining room. And... That is this particular room here. It's it, it's no longer set up as a dining room. They have a, uh, a couch and an armchair in there. It's, it, they almost make it look like a little living room or whatever. It was actually the dining room. And they did a seance at the table there. Uh, it was the Warrens, obviously, the parents, the, the, the daughters, the girls were upstairs. Uh, they had a... Uh, some sort of medium or clairvoyant there running the seance. Uh, that was not Lorraine. And then there was a, a small film crew that was there. And so during this seance, something took a hold of Carolyn 
and threw her back into uh, this room, which is the parlor. And Carolyn was out. She does not remember that at all, by the way. Uh, she was completely out, um, you know, terrified the girls because they were all watching, you know, from the stairs, even though they were told to stay in their rooms. Of course, you know, curious girls are, you know, want to know what's going on. So they're terrified. Uh, you know, Roger rushes to his wife. Ed is trying to tell him, you know, you know to back away that, you know, whatever grabbed a hold of her may still be there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, he tried to, uh, to move Roger away from Carolyn. And so, you know, Roger punched him dead in the face uh, and, you know, basically kicked out the Warrens and their team. And the Warrens never stepped foot back in that house again. Very, very different than what the movie portrays. Uh, you know, that was back in 1973. And the parents lived there for another seven years with all kinds of things continuing to go on within that house. Uh, and that's just a 10-year period of that house. Uh, that house is uh, hundreds of years old. So we don't know what else you know, may have gone on there throughout all those other years. Um, the, the gentleman that owned the house before them, before the parents, he would leave the light on every night. He would leave all the lights on every single night. And that was kind of a, um, when the parents would interact with the locals, the, the locals would tell them about that. Like, oh, you keep, you know, you're, you're keeping the lights off at night. And the parents were like, yeah, <laughs> because um, Mr. Kenyon was his name, uh, would keep all those lights on every night. So something was going on there. Um, you know, there were, there was a little warning that he kind of uh, gave Roger uh, before he left, and, uh, and then they never saw him again. But, um, yeah, very, very different than what the movie portrays. Uh, so, Sarah Youssef, do you think it was the entity's attachment to the family that kept them there? Um, I mean, there's a number of different entities that are there that have been there for, for hundreds of years. Um, it's not just one particular uh, entity. So the you know, the movie focuses on Bathsheba, but um, I don't even know if you could count the number of different uh, spirits that they actually interacted with there. One of the more uh, famous or well-known ones that people talk about is, is quote-unquote Manny. Um, they don't know if that was his name, but they they started calling the girls started calling him that from day one, because when they were moving into the house, uh, they saw him there, you know, this, this other gentleman that was there, they thought it was Mr. Kenyon's friend. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, but he wasn't there, you know, all the girls saw him, but the adults, uh, but the adults were not at the time, apparently, uh, we don't know if Mr. Kenyon did, but, um, like, like Carolyn didn't see him. And I don't, I don't think Roger saw him either. Uh, at least at that point, but but all the girls had. And so because he was a man, they just called him Manny, but they have no idea if that was his name. And that's something that, that Andrea points out in The Shadow Dimension, that there were all of these different spirits that were there, uh, but they never introduced themselves and never said, hello, my name is, uh, or explained their story or from what time period they were from. Now, they had different interactions there, uh, you know, with things from other time periods. I've, I've talked before about the time slip that, uh, that Carolyn and Andrea had experienced there. And that actually, uh, that was actually the same area of the house, which was this parlor. From this parlor, they saw the, uh, the family in the dining room where you know, there was the woman cooking over the fireplace. Now, this fireplace was blocked up at the time, uh, so there's no way she could be, like, you know, really cooking, off, you know, really cooking over a fire there. Um, you know, there was a different table that had manifested into the room with a couple gentlemen sitting there, and the one gentleman turned to the other, you know, looking into the parlor and say, well, would you look at that? Because they saw the parents there. 
so that's that is the exact same area in which uh, the time slip happened, which is the area in which the uh, in which the seance happened. And so that's one of the things I point out in the shadow dimension is, you know, you have basically like this column of of energy from the basement, the well room, where you have an open well with water. You have the limestone uh, walls, and they're capped with granite. So it's like a perfect little power plant. And then you have the parlor right above that. And then Andrea's old room is above that. And that's where, you know, Carl saw the rolling black smoke come toward him in 1973. Andrea had experienced that same black smoke there since we were talking, you know, shadows and, and that sort of stuff during the shadow dimension. But, you know, you read her books, and there are so many stories of things that happened right in that area. Um, and that's where uh, I caught the interdimensional phasing, uh, that photo that is is featured in the shadow dimension. So Rick Abbott saying that he started watching the shadow dimension. Uh, thank you. Appreciate that. And also Rick's question, uh, how many entities live in the conjuring house and when was the first activity there? Yeah, don't know. And that's kind of what I'm kind of what I'm talking about. They have no idea how many are there. There are many that are there. Uh, and first activity, you know, you might, you might take that back to, um, you know, the first family that actually lived there were the Richardsons. Everybody calls it the old Arnold estate because the, the Arnolds, uh, were the family that the last name of the family that lived there for so long, but the Arnolds basically took it over through, through marriage, the Richard, uh, uh, the Arnolds married into the Richardson family, and that was the name that survived was Arnold, but it was originally the Richardsons. But I, we have no idea if uh, any of the Richardsons or Arnolds uh, experienced activity back in, uh, in the 1700s. Basically, the house goes back into the 1600s. They don't know the exact day that it was constructed or the, the exact year. They just have an approximation. Uh, Sarah Youssef, does the multitude of entities at the house seem to have a hierarchy? Uh, no, not really. Um, they, they almost all seem to be on their own. Um, yeah, from most of the stories that, uh, that I've read, cause I've read Andrea's series. Uh, we've had Andrea on here many times. The other people that have, you know, come on to the show talking about like Carl and Keith, um, they don't really seem to have a lot of interaction with each other. They almost seem to be their own sentient beings. Now, uh, spirits can interact with each other, and they they can certainly know that uh, you know, that other spirits are there, that other entities are there. Uh, you know, we we've seen that happen, um, but you know whether there's like some sort of you know hierarchy like that, it, it, there really doesn't seem to be. Uh, so, Sarah, have you been able to obtain any data in regards to interdimensional phasing? Um, you know, like like what kind of data? Like, um, you know, measuring the energy that's there. You know, people have measured energy there. Um, I have a visual of it. <laughs> so you actually see it happening. Uh, so I don't know what additional uh, data you might be looking for there. So... That's a conjuring house. I don't want to spend, uh, you know, all night on that. Uh, I do want to kind of shift from there into other stories and kind of talk about how, um, you know, how uh, legend and lore comes about and trying to dig into uh, some of these these older stories where, well, we'll start right here. Uh, let me flip back to the presentation. There we go. So Mount Airy Mansion, Rosaryville Park. This was when I was first researching Ghosts of Maryland. Um, this story was really fascinating to me. So I got my start in writing uh, with mystery. And when I, I mean, going back to when I was like seven years old, um, you know, I, I love reading little mystery stories like Encyclopedia Brown. I loved writing them. Uh, I've been writing since that age. Uh, my first published uh, book was a mystery novel. So to me, what was going on here was was a mystery. Now, this house here, if you look at the structure on the right, 
uh, you can see it is of a different style than that white facade directly in front. Uh, again, another historic house that's been added onto over time. So the, uh, the structure that's on the right is the original old hunting lodge. Again, dates back into the 1600s. Uh, this is, you know, basically around the time when, when Maryland was first settled. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, about the same age, uh, as the conjuring house. The, the white part there, a uh, little bit newer, that was added on to. Uh, George Washington spent some time here. His, uh, his stepson married into the family. Uh, you can't see them, but off to the, uh, the left are some, some boxwoods, and you know, the, the legend is, is that George Washington supplied those. But in any case, all that aside with George Washington, when I was doing... Uh, research on this house, came across a number of fascinating uh, ghost stories associated with it. But I found this little one-liner about a distraught young woman, heartbroken and mourning about the house, still desiring a forbidden love she was disallowed to have in life. That's all I had to go on, that, that this person was there, um, had zero information about her. But you know, I was curious, okay, who is this young woman? What's her story? Um, you know, when did she live there? You know, it's, this is a house that's hundreds of years old. Um, you know, why was she forbidden, uh, you know, from, from her love? What, you know, what was the story behind this, this poor young woman? And, and how did she die? So I did some digging, not just for her, but I was still searching for information about the house. And as I was searching for information about the house, I found this book from 1914 called Colonial Mansions of Maryland and Delaware by John Martin Hammond. Um, I have a workshop. I haven't done it in years, but I have a workshop on researching paranormal history. And one of the things I mention is old books, that you will find a treasure trove in old books because as time goes on, uh, decisions are made as far as what information to keep and what information to go ahead and discard because as history continues to move on, uh, it's, it's a lot of information to stick it all in one book. So you can find some treasures in old books. And in this book, I found this, The Tragedy of Ariana Calvert. Uh, her life is one of the most pathetic stories connected with the historic old mansion. She loved a young man who had been received at her father's house, but was not looked upon with favor as a daughter's prospective husband. And once I saw that, it was like, oh my gosh, here is the story that was relegated to a one-liner on a website somewhere. And so... You know, the story is basically that her, uh, her father, Benjamin, on the left there um, in this slide, uh, did not like the young man that had an interest in his daughter. Uh, Ariana and the young man were, were, were head over heels for each other, and Benjamin just did not like this, uh, this kid at all. So as, uh, as he, he forbade Ariana from seeing him, but of course, young love being what it is, she continued to, uh, to try to go see him. And so to prevent that, because it kept going on, Benjamin sent his daughter away to go live with her older sisters in Annapolis. Uh, and by doing that, he absolutely crushed his daughter. Um, she grew into an extreme depression. Uh, her sisters tried to, what they thought, help her and brought other suitors in to try to court Ariana. She wanted nothing at all to do with them. Um, she turned every single one away. And during all this time, she grew more and more despondent. She grew more and more depressed to the point that she started getting ill. Uh, her health started failing. And she was she was uh, just getting extremely frail, and you know was basically wasting away. 
during that time, while she was wasting away in Annapolis, her father passed away. He died. So her mother, who's pictured here on the, on the right, took pity upon the girl and invited her back home. But uh, it was too late. It was too late, and Ariana passed away. Um, you can kind of see the uh, story uh, displayed here. So that's, uh, yeah, that's the tragedy of, of the home. And so it's a story that I use when I talk about diving into this old history, about giving these people a voice today, that here's a young woman who had this tragedy happen to her that, you know, her, her father was the penultimate jerk. Um, and, and it wasn't just that either. Uh, there are other things you, you read through like the history of him. Uh, he was kind of just a jerk all around. Um, and over the years, her story had been relegated to one little line, didn't have a name associated with her. Uh, you know, nobody knew why she was mourning about the house other than, you know, this forbidden love thing. But now she has a story to her. Now she can be remembered properly, uh, which is which is something I always find fascinating, digging into, into this history. So that's, that's getting into specific history. But what happens when you have something like like this, the Skirvin Hotel in Oklahoma City, where you have some extremely crazy, bizarre stories that you have NBA teams blaming, oh, I don't have the slideshow on. Okay, <laughs> let me put that back on. Yeah, the Skir here's the Skirvin Hotel. Sorry, guys. Skirvin Hotel, Oklahoma City. And you have basketball players blaming their loss, multiple teams doing this, to being scared out of their bedrooms at night due to Effie the Chambermaid. Who the heck is Effie the Chambermaid? Well, Effie, according to the legend, was a chambermaid at the Skirvin Hotel who was the lover of the original proprietor, uh, W.B. Skirvin, and in their love affair, they had they had a baby, but uh, because she was just a chambermaid, W.B. Skirvin did not want people to know that he had fathered a baby with her, so he stashed her away in the top floor of the hotel. And again, you have this story of somebody who becomes extremely depressed and distraught. And in her distress, Effie grabbed the baby and jumped from that top story window with the baby to their deaths below. A lot of problems with the story. Uh, first and foremost, there's no record of an Effie ever having uh, existed. You know, it was never a chambermaid. Can't find the name anywhere of, of an Effie uh, associated with the Skirvin Hotel. Not at all. Not just that, there's no record of any woman having, having jumped out of the top story window to her death from that hotel. No baby. Uh, nothing. It's just, there it is. There is some, some story that exists, but no facts to back it up. Or are there? So in my research, trying to figure out, this was for my Ghosts and Legends of Oklahoma book, and trying to figure out, okay, where in the world did this story come from? If there is no Effie and there is no woman jumping from uh, the hotel with a baby to their deaths, where did the story come from? So I started looking deeper uh, into all of this. And so looking at the hotel, in the history of it. Okay, this is an early uh, postcard of the Skirvin Hotel from 1920. You'll notice some things that are a little different about this. 
the height is different. In the early 1930s, uh, there was a renovation done to the hotel that added uh, some floors to the hotel. And you could see the, the lighter color at the top and then some of that different facade that's at the top of the hotel in this photo. In the old uh, postcard, you don't see that. That's because they added on to it. Well, there is a story. you got to keep that in mind. There's a story from 1932 in which a man dies in a hotel plunge. Um, not a woman. It's a salesman from Dallas that jumped out of the uh, the 10th story window. That's important to note because at one point in time, that was the top floor of the hotel. In fact, it was just very recent in comparison to this article that they had added on those floors. The Skirvin Hotel had been around for uh, t about 20 years at that point, 15, 20 years. So if you told somebody in 1932 that there was a man who jumped out of the 10th story window of the Skirvin Hotel, somebody who's familiar with the hotel enough from the 1920s, late 19-teens, to know that the 10th story window was the top floor back then, they would probably associate. Remember, news didn't travel as fast back then. Um, you know, they would likely associate the 10th story with the top story because it had been at one point. So then that's where the story starts changing. People who didn't know that there were four more floors added on associate the story of top story to, or the story of 10th floor to top story, because that's what they're thinking, that there's still 10 floors there when there were not. So, okay, that explains the number of floors problem. So now what about the woman? Well, there was a woman some years later, not from the top story or even the 10th floor, um, it was on the eighth floor in which a woman attempted to jump out of the hotel. There was an officer nearby that stopped her from actually doing so. She was charged $11 for drunkenness, uh, but she was stopped from her attempt of, of jumping out of the window. Doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's uh, who they imparted Effie onto, but it's possible. This is, it's, Still in the same decade, still in the 1930s, a woman who attempted to jump out. There is a guy who did from uh, the 10th floor, which had once been the top floor of the hotel. Um, so you have some different details that are starting to emerge here. And over the years, get mashed into the legend of the hotel because there are, there's paranormal activity that started happening there as well, where people were seeing a phantom chambermaid. People were hearing a phantom maid cart roll down the hall. You know, they would hear it outside their door. They'd open the door because they would want, you know, something from the maid. There's no maid. Uh, there's one individual who claimed that the apparition of the chambermaid appeared to him in, while he was in the shower. I'm going to take that one with a grain of salt. Um, but a lot of people did claim to see this apparition there. There are also reports of the phantom cry, a disembodied cry of a baby upon the air. So they believe that to be, you know, the ghost of the baby. So you have all of these different hauntings that are now becoming ingrained into the story. You know, they take the story of, you know, the phantom baby to and, and place it onto this uh, this phantom chambermaid that has been seen. And, oh, there's somebody who, uh, you know, jumped out of the hotel, forgetting that it was a man, um, you know, forgetting that it was the 10th floor, which used to be the top floor, but wasn't the top floor anymore. 
know, now it's just somebody jumping out of the top floor of the hotel. Uh, and it all becomes mishmashed together into this story. Where the name Effie came from, we don't know. Um, but all of these other details become the legend. And it takes a lot of digging to try to find what was the original truth. And it's interesting that you have, you know, real physical, real life details within the story that have been, you know, meshed together with some of the paranormal encounters that are happening there. You know, people trying to explain why is there the cry of a baby? Well, you know, who is this chambermaid that keeps being seen? You know, and and, and so on. So it's interesting to see all this uh, mishmash together. So um, Sarah's use of sensationalist aspects seem to also feed into paranormal energies. Well, yeah, that's the whole idea of, um, you know, the Conjuring House or uh, Amityville and, and all that. And it, it's... Uh, you know, sensationalizing the stories is, you know, part of that whole storytelling aspect. This goes back to the very beginning when I was talking about people like a good story. You know, if you want, if there's something about it that you want them to remember, you do sensationalize parts of it so that, you know, they, they end up remembering, oh, this is a good engaging story. And then it gets to whatever the point is. And then you end up remembering the point much better because it was good storytelling. Um, I'm going to skip through some uh, some different things here. There's a whole thing on the Gore Orphanage that's a part of uh, that's a part of the old presentation. I have a uh, you know a lot of uh, videos that are on that on the Hunter Road Media channel. There's the uh, the one where I break down uh, the whole history of the place. So this is the one where you know the the children were supposed to have been trapped in the orphanage in a fire, uh, and you know, it was run by old man Gore, which you know never existed. Uh, there was no Gore orphanage. It was on top of the hill, uh, the Light of Hope orphanage. Down at the bottom hill, the building that's ascribed to the Gore orphanage was actually a mansion. Uh, it was actually the, uh, the Swift mansion. So the Swift family and the Wilbur family lived in there. It was never an orphanage. Uh, the building later on was owned by the orphanage, but it was long since abandoned uh, at that time. Imagine the kids from the orphanage actually played in there, uh, but mostly the the kids from the orphanage worked the farm. Um, there was the the real tragedy of the story. The one part of the story that's actually true is that the uh, uh, the people that ran the orphanage. Uh, we're, we're, a, we're absolutely terrible. Um, the, uh, the Sprungers, they, uh, you know, they worked the kids to death. They did not educate them. They, you know, would make 15 kids use the same bath water. Um, you know, the, the food that they ate was substandard and that's not exaggeration. That stuff that actually came out in court, in the court trials. Um, you know, those are actually actual facts. Um, I know I, did, I said I wasn't really going to get into uh, the Gore Orphanage, but I'm just trying to kind of quickly go through it. There was an, an article. Uh, that the, it did burn down, ironically enough, long after. Uh, by this point, it had been abandoned um, for oh, about 25 years. The orphanage had long since been gone uh, for seven years by the, by the time that the, uh, the actual house burned down. Um, there were, had been some talks of trying to restore the house to its previous grandeur. Um, but then all of a sudden they attributed basically to kids because kids would go there, um, and screw around. This is, this is back in the 1920s. This is, uh, like 1923. And, uh, so it, but even back then it was deemed a haunted house. So, um, you know, where did the, the, uh, uh, the story of all the children dying in a fire come from? Because there is a fire here at this particular house. Um, there was an orphanage that was up the hill. Well, there was another tragedy there in the area. Um, I'd say in the area, but really it was about 20 miles away uh, in Collinwood in the Cleveland area. This was a real tragedy in which uh, you know, we didn't have you know, all the fire laws and regulations and standards that we do now. Uh, the construction of this particular school, when it was set on fire, there was really only one exit for the kids to try to get out. 
uh, and basically they all perished trying to get out the front door. Um, so there was, uh, I don't remember the number offhand, but it was like around 170 children that perished in this fire. So uh, there is an idea that the uh, this tragedy of Collinwood was in some ways transplanted onto the legend of of Gore Orphanage. And then there is Helltown. And yes, Nicole, you have been there. <laughs> uh, Nicole has definitely been to, to Gore Orphanage. Uh, then there's Helltown, which Tom down there has been. And what's crazy about this, um, this was another real tragedy in which in the 1970s, the United States government decided that they wanted to take back uh, land for use in, in national parks. And instead of just designating land that had been touched as natural parks, they decided to uh, institute eminent domain and take back land uh, that was already being inhabited. In this particular area, this is um, the Boston Mills area of Ohio uh, Peninsula and, and some of the other little towns that are around there. Um, you know, it, they were these were just kind of small towns along the uh, the canal. Uh, you know, just you know, regular little homes. There were some you know mom and pop commercial businesses, and they they put those people out of business and they took away the homes. Um, and because this happened at such a quick pace. Um, a lot of those homes just were instantly abandoned. Um, you know, they they allowed the fire departments to come in and train on the home. So then you would have abandoned homes next to a burned down home. Uh, so it became known as, as Helltown because it looked like hell. Uh, you know, over time, they've cleaned a lot of that up. Um, you know, this is, you know, 40 years, almost 40 years later now, uh, th at least what, 35, you know, no, it would be about 40. Um, so how old am I? Cause it started happening in the late seventies. So yeah, you know, over 40 years ago now. <clears throat> um, so yeah, they, they've cleaned up a lot now. They've turned it more into the park. Uh, most of the buildings that had been abandoned are now gone. You know, they, the government did, you know, provide them with, you know, some money or what have you to leave and go elsewhere. But you're talking about, you know, families that have been there for generations. You know, people who had, you know, built a business there um, that were that were now, you know, losing their their small business and, and things like that. A lot of legends grew up around there, of course, you know, because you know people are seeing the. Uh, you know, the burned out homes, all the abandonment, um, the, uh, you know, there's the legend of the school bus that was, that was left abandoned there, that uh, the school bus, you know, carrying a bunch of children was stopped by these serial killers and the, you know, the serial killers murdered the children, uh, which is not true. Uh, the, the bus was actually uh, commandeered by a family who was remodeling their home. And, as they were remodeling, they had, um, I guess, were doing so much work inside the house, they actually used the bus as a place to kind of sleep at night um, you know, while they were working on the house. Well, at that time, that's when this edict came down to toss the people out of their houses. So they're like, well, we're losing our home. We don't need to take the bus. And they, so they just left the bus. Uh, but there are a lot of other crazy things. Uh, you know, uh, the rumors of the satanic church, that there's upside down crosses on the church. And if you go to that particular church, it's just the architectural style. It's called a gingerbread style architecture. There aren't, are not upside down crosses. <laughs> it's not a satanic church. Um, you know, but that's what people started doing. Where They started coming up with all these crazy uh, stories and, and legends. Um so this particular, let me go back to the slide, and we only have a couple minutes left. Um, so this was crazy. So this was like one of the last houses that was there. This was um, September, let's say 2016. By that following February, it's just gone, totally wiped out. I mean, the, you don't even see remnants of like where the driveway was. It's just gone. Um, 
you know, here's some of the, uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of an example of a, of an abandoned school bus, you know, upside down cross. It's all, you know, it's all just stories. Um, the bottom photo here is a, uh, older photo of Boston, Boston Mills. These, these buildings are, are gone. You know, it was a thriving little, uh, community that, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of farmland there. Uh, there was the, uh, the Jate paper mill, which is, uh, you know, part of my family history. It's Charles Jate there who, who owned and operated it, um, the uh, all the little kids there in that photo are uh, a number of those are his children the uh, the little blonde haired kid off on the left hand side of that photo is my grandfather um and my annie k is in that photo as well so you know so this was this was a family business the uh, the yellow little houses there uh, this was one of those uh places uh jate which was north of boston mills that was a known as a company town where they had actually supplied housing for the uh the workers you know at the mill so it was that type of stuff uh that was there so i had a uh i have my own theories as to what really went down and why they booted people out you know a couple of things that i discovered they always say look in plain sight for for your answers as to what really happened and so I found a couple of things just while, you know, basically walking down the towpath. One was um, there's a transcontinental cable that's going right through the area right now. The other thing is a gas pipeline. Well, you know, it's uh, really convenient to install that kind of infrastructure if you're trying to run uh, gas through there or if you're trying to run a transcontinental cable through there. If uh, you don't have to worry about all the flack from the people, if you've got them booted out, you don't have to worry about it. And the people in that area had already been known for uh, for standing their ground. Um, prior to all of this stuff with uh, with eminent domain in in booting them out for the you know, national park, um, you know the locals had already stood their ground against the highway going through the highway. Uh, 271 was going to go right through the town and, um, you know, create a lot of havoc and noise and, um, you know, kind of make the, you know, basically the, the community, you know, look trashy. They didn't want that. So they fought and they fought and they fought and they won. They were able to get the highway diverted more toward the south. So that's why 271 kind of has this loop that goes around and then, you know, back up to the north where they originally wanted it. Uh, so with that kind of history, yeah, they didn't want to go through the courts and have that this drag out for years because that took several years for them to fight that. Um, they're just like, all right, we'll declare eminent domain. Now the locals still, you know, went to uh, they still fought that. You know, there were several that went to Congress uh, and tried to fight that. Still, they lost, but um, but yeah, they were they were a resilient bunch, and it's just. Uh, you know, recently here that the last few remnants of that are are gone. But you know, there's all kinds of crazy legends and stories that come out of that location just because of the way it looked for a good, you know, 20 years after that imminent uh, domain took place and all of those houses were abandoned. You know, you get stories of witches and, you know, toxic spills and aliens and uh, secret government underground bases and you know, none of, none of that is true. And I've talked to an elderly uh, a gentleman who lived there uh, during all that. And he's, he, I'm going to touch base with him. And now the COVID is kind of winding down. I talked with him um, a little over a year ago. And uh, you know, he wants to take me through the area. Uh, and so now that it's winding down, we're, you know, I'm going to reach out to him again. And, you know, we'll go through all that stuff, which is, uh, it's going to be fascinating, you know, the, the real stories of what happened there. Uh, so, all right. Uh, let's go ahead and, and wrap this up. We've gotten down to uh, the end of the show here. Uh, appreciate you guys sitting and listening to the uh, legends and lore and the truth of what actually goes on at some of these locations. Um, yeah, there are some fantastic stories that are out there that um, – you know, as you know, we're in the field of the uh, you know the supernatural, the paranormal, the extraterrestrial, the weird, uh, the unusual. 
you hear some of these fantastic stories that are just, you seem, you hear it, you're like, that's just a story, that's just a legend, but somewhere in there is at least some grain of truth. And it might take a little legwork to find it, but uh, but you will. It's there. there there's some truth behind uh, all of these things. Um, all right, everybody, really appreciate it. Um, thanks for joining us here on Beyond the Shadows. Uh, for those that are listening later to the podcast or on KGRA, please check out the actual live stream. Join us here. You can have your questions asked. Uh, you can weigh in on all this stuff live through the Connected Universe portal, connecteduniverseportal.com. Have a great night, everybody.